Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. everybody and welcome back to the internal medicine for a vet techs podcast hope you guys are all doing well um on this fantastic september day <laughs> september of 2020 i guess depending on wow. when you're listening to this okay but when we're I, recording I can't it believe it's september of 2020 you tell me about it <laughs> but that means it's almost the end of 2020 <laughs> this is true i'm kind of looking forward to that at this point Right? It's been a very, very rough year. Anyway, we are your host. My name is Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful, beautiful, amazingly smart Yvonne Brandenburg. I see what I did there. I that's not fair. <laughs> I need well, to do more of the intros. <laughs> <laughs> hey girl, you were also Hi. brilliant, smart, funny. And an amazing <laughs> podcast partner. Aw. <laughs> See? Thanks. Go. Got you back. <laughs> hey, so how's how's your week going? A little bit, uh, little bit less crazy? Home, homeschool still sucked this week. We uh, had a really good day up until Friday. <laughs> oh, no. Friday sucked. <sighs> and then Friday was the day that I think I broke my finger. Because, you know. Oh, my God. can't just have a simple normal day where something doesn't get hurt (laughs) (laughs) oh oh my god it's been a couple months since i've injured myself yeah that's true you have your um like little metal finger splint thing going on right now Mm -hmm. i'm like oh god because it hurts so bad that like it was one of those things where like it hurt to just touch it on anything like on accident even and it's like swollen and i was just like i I'm going to injure it more or I'm going to just start cussing more than I normally would. <laughs> is it <laughs> your dominant cry. hand or is it your non-dominant? Yeah. Oh, it's your dominant. I, I call it my good hand because it's my cat bite hand. So it's already like, it's already my messed up finger because it's like the joints fused, which is why I think I injured it is because my joint is fused and somehow I, I was, I don't even know how I did it, but somehow it got like smashed and it just... I think because the joint's fused, it can't move where a normal mm. finger could move and give if it were to like be bent in a certain direction and this oh, one man. can't. <laughs> that sucks. I'm sorry. So yeah, that was that was my Friday. Today was better. We went for ice cream today. Connor kind of got a black guy while we were out for ice cream. <laughs> what? Oh my God. <laughs> well, so they were playing in the rain because like it started to downpour and um we were letting the kids play in the rain. I went out with a friend uh, to just go get ice cream with the kids and it started to rain and we're like, all right, well, we'll wait it out because it normally just rains for like 10 minutes here and then it's done. And then like um, it started raining harder and harder and harder and the kids are playing and one of the friends like flew her arms out, like just kind of dancing in the rain and like just Ugh. whacked Connor right in the face. And like, I think uh-huh. her fingernail caught him. So he has a scratch like underneath his eye. I was like, Good job. Oh my God. I know. I was mentioning Barry's mouth stuff. Like, 
she's got a mouthful of plastic and metal right now from our orthodontist trip on Thursday. It's, <laughs> it's been a week. <laughs> How's your week, Yvonne? My week has actually not been horrible. Um, I feel like the poop situation is clearing up in my house. If you haven't heard about it, my cats, <laughs> cats, oh my God, the poop. Um, but everybody's on metronidazole right now <laughs> and, nice. and, and uh, proviable and fiber. So that is combating the antibiotic diarrhea that they have for the suspected Bartonella that is in my house at the moment. We're uh, anticipating, we're, well, I'm being a crazy mom like, because I keep checking to see if the results are back yet for N- from NC State. <laughs> Nice. But because of COVID, things are taking a lot longer. So I keep staring at it, hoping the results are back um, for their, their Bartonella testing. Because I swear to God, dude, I, I'm telling I, you, I'm ready for I, I don't know 2020 to end. Yeah, I. On the plus side, Bailey Ooh. did her like round off back handspring back tuck today. That was a pretty sweet video. I saw that video. Um, Jordan totally shared the video of her kid doing this. Like, I don't know. To me, it was like Olympics <laughs> style. Like, <laughs> I was like, holy crap. I'm sure it's probably a basic normal move. But to me, I was like, oh my God, she should go to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of a like, sweet, she's ready to move up to level five. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know what that means other than I'm negative level negative five. <laughs> Yeah, me too. My uncle was like, I bet you maybe you could do that. I was like, yeah, I tried on the trampoline and I broke my arm. You're like, I hurt my finger opening or closing a door. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Like it's not me and like just rapid movements apparently are not like cohesive. Yeah. You know, at a certain age, Jordan, you just can't do it anymore. (laughs) Right? Like you hit 30 and it's all downhill. It's all downhill from there. My my bones are so brittle now. I'm like, I just oh like it's ridiculous. That's a whole other episode where we talk about calcium <laughs> deficiency. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Anyway, a little bit of housekeeping this week. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um if you are a member of the Internal Medicine for Vet Text membership, uh you can so this is episode 48, which is liver aspirates and biopsies the why and how it is, um, a race approved CE for a half an hour of race approved. Um, so if you're in the membership, uh, just make sure you answer your questions so you can get your race certificate. Uh, and if you're not in the membership, you can still use this podcast as some of your CE is kind of a self-study CE, um, depending on where you're at and you just don't have the race certificate because again, in order to get the race certificate, you do have to ask, answer the questions and that's, uh, found in the membership. So if you are part of the membership, go ahead and just log in, get, get into the courses and, um, get your CE certificate. If you're not part of the membership, you can check it out at, uh, internal medicine for membership.com. Uh, and there's, there's a couple of options and how to get in there. And I always tell people this because we, we know technicians are broke because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all broke. Um, remember that 
you know, it's, it's a good idea to ask your clinic for like a clinical membership. We do have that option there. Um, so, you know, having your clinic pay for CE and paying for a membership, that is very common, um, for, for people to do. Uh, so that's not an unusual ask. Um, if you need help <laughs> figuring out how to approach your manager or your clinic or your boss or whoever is in charge of that, just let us know. We'd be happy to help you. Um, but yeah, we half half hour of race approved CE for this week. Yeah. And it's a half an hour because we're just talking liver aspirates and biopsies. As technicians, obviously we are not allowed to perform surgery, so (laughs) we're not going to go into like the crazy details of it. Um, It's going to be just kind of a rough run through mostly like why we do it, what we should be looking for before doing some of these procedures. Um, We're going to discuss a little bit of like pharmacology a little bit with Mm -hmm. our liver patients, just because that is important. Because a lot of times (laughs) with our hepatic patients before doing these um, procedures, we're going to give them a little bit of something to just kind of mildly sedate them. Well, I guess not for a biopsy. We'll get there. (laughs) But in my world, we just give a little bit of light sedation before aspirates. So, um, but also understanding that when we're talking about biopsies, it is a surgical biopsy. Well, it's an anesthetic procedure biopsy most of the times, unless we're talking true cut. But even true cuts do need some sort of um, pain medication uh, for the procedure because, you know, we are going into the abdomen with a larger needle. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's, there's definitely drugs associated. So we, we need to make sure that as technicians, we know what drug dosages we're talking about, what kinds of drugs, um, and what to look for. And then, um, because poor, poor Jordan hasn't done many liver biopsies. <laughs> any. By many, you mean any. <laughs> um, I'll be, I'll be talking about some of my um, experiences that I've had in surgery, like, you know, things that as a technician, what we're monitoring and, and looking out for. So. Yeah, exactly. So liver sampling is typically indicated in our patients with elevated liver enzymes, especially the ones with unknown cause. We discussed it in the past two episodes the past two weeks mm-hmm. about how we really want to kind of play detective and try to figure out why the liver enzymes are elevated. But usually the last kind of resort diagnostic tool is a liver biopsy or liver sampling. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of diseases that we won't know about without seeing the, um, the structure of the liver. So yeah. And, and we talked about it before where you can't truly diagnose hepatitis without a liver biopsy. Mm -hmm. So Um, so we, it's indicated in patients with elevated liver enzymes, elevated bile acids, unexplained hepatomegaly or microhepatica. So large liver, small liver, um, hepatic lesions or masses, and then changes to hepatic architecture as well. Yeah. So I, and you know, we're, we're seeing these things on ultrasound a lot of times and, you know, in order to know, how to treat for them, we do need a sample of the, of the liver or of the mass or the lesion or whatever it is. Um, and so sometimes, um, so, you know, if it's just not just, but if we're concerned about something like lymphoma, you know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. we can see that on an aspirate versus some of the other like copper storage disease, you're not going to see on an aspirate versus, 
um, you know, carcinoma or something like that. So there's reasons why we would want to do aspirates versus biopsies. And sometimes it has to do with like, um, I'm going to say ASA. <laughs> do you, do you know what ASA is, Jordan? No. I feel like I was going to say, <laughs> so it's, um, the anesthesia society of America, they have ASA levels and it's basically like what, what risk category a patient is going into surgery. So a zero is there's no risk. And then five is basically if they don't have surgery or don't have the, whatever intervention, they will die. Um, or they're, um, already actually, I think in the human, sorry, I think level five is they're pretty much brain dead. So it's like organ harvesting. Um, Hmm. but for us, it's, you know, you've got like a patient with like a mild heart murmur. It's like a level one, right. And it's a yeah. versus, you know, if you've got something with a heart murmur and liver disease and, 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 you know, we may be having like ASA levels two or three. Um, and those are like our critical patients. So, you know, if you have something that has an ASA level three, you know, and it's older, maybe the owners are like, no, I'm not taking the risk of anesthesia and surgery. So we're just doing aspirates versus actual biopsy. So yeah. You know, and, and finances will definitely play a role a little bit too. Oh, for sure. For yeah. Aspirates are definitely a lot cheaper <laughs> than the surgery, yeah. Yeah. especially a liver biopsy surgery. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk about it a little bit more though, too. Sometimes you need b- both, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so we're going to discuss cytology first because that's what I know. Um, but <laughs> well, and I think like, cytology is kind of, sometimes like, that's just the first step, right? It is the first step. Cause that so especially cytology and you don't have to go to biopsy. So exactly. Because there are times where you can get a carcinoma answer, um, or lymphoma answer prior to actually cutting the dog and putting them through big surgery and then recovery. So mm-hmm. cytology is obtained by fine needle aspirates or FNA. There are minimal complications with doing FNAs in our patients. So when I go over consent forms with owners, because we're giving light sedation, um, typically I'll inform people we're likely going to see bruising, just like if we stuck a needle into ourselves, bruising is the kind of number one complication we do see. Bleeding can occur, but we usually check coags and we check platelets and things like that prior to doing these things. Infection can occur because you're introducing a needle through the skin into the abdomen, especially if you have immune compromised patients. Um, However, with these patients, we are like pretty much surgically prepping them. We do shave the area and then we scrub it with alcohol and chlorhexidine solution. I'll just say surgical prep because we, we don't use alcohol and chlorhexidine. And and again, this is, this is clinic specific. So surgical prep, right? So whether that's alcohol, chlorhexine, we do chlorhexy scrub and chlorhexy solution um, instead of alcohol. And then I know there's, um, you can also do uh, iodine prep. um, Oh yeah. But we don't do iodine all the time just because it stains the patients. Yeah. We, We only use iodine very minimally because it's also, well, I mean, chlorhexidine can definitely be pretty irritating to tissues. Yeah, (laughs) definitely can be irritating to tissues. Yeah. So yeah, chlorhexidine and iodine can both be pretty 
irritating to the skin, especially mm-hmm. if not like diluted properly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so laceration can also occur, especially if the patient moves, which is why we recommend light sedation. Mm-hmm. Um, because Lord help anybody if a patient moves and you lost and the liver is lacerated. Mind you, <laughs> yeah. also, I don't know the legality of this, but my doctor is doing the aspirates. I am just assisting with aspirates. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I feel like the aspirate level is actually like a pretty weird line that hasn't been drawn in the technician world quite yet. Like specifically, cause you're, I was going to say, I definitely, we don't aspirate organs. Yeah. The only thing we like, aspirate is like, um, bladders. Yeah, exactly. Well, like, but that's it's not true. We aspirate bladders and then we also do like, um, sometimes we'll do like abdominocentesis if it's a patient that comes in frequently for that, like a cardiac, mm-hmm. we have some cardiac patients and, you know, we'll just use like, we, we know that it's a very straightforward thing and like the doctor's yeah. in the room and they allow us to do the abdominocentesis or but see, um, those are centesises and not yeah. aspirates, yeah, but it, it's virtually but, the same like mechanism of like procedure. Yeah. Yeah, it is, but so, we're not so like aspirating said, so, organs. <laughs> no, no, we are not. We are assisting. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I discuss with clients all those risks and complications, as well as the fact that we do run any sort of like anesthetic complication when administering some sort of sedative. So yes, patients can have reactions to drugs. I do try to talk to clients about that, mm-hmm. um, especially depending on the status of the patient when they're coming in and we're doing these procedures. The the variance of like an quote unquote anesthetic risk is Mm -hmm. variable on the patient. Um, that's that ASA risk, right? So you, you understand how debilitated the patient is before you give stuff. Yep. So it is recommended prior to us doing FNAs to check. We like, we have our like normal routine of checking PCV platelets and then coagulation statuses. So Mm -hmm. PTE, APTT. Um, and then as long as those are fine or within a certain range, we'll move forward with aspirates. We're not going to aspirate something that has only 20,000 platelets because of the risk of bleeding. (laughs) Yeah. Um, or with not a liver Mm -mm. because livers are very vascular and will bleed if you don't have enough platelets or your coags are off. Yeah. What? I know. Crazy, crazy talk. Yeah. And you know, um, we, when we're talking like this, we're talking about liver aspirates and biopsies. There's, I don't think you can aspirate a liver without using an ultrasound. Um, so it's ultrasound guided aspirate, which is a little bit different than just like, you know, um, like a lymph, lymph node, node aspirate, aspirate <laughs> right? So I think when Jordan and I were talking about, we don't aspirate. We we're talking about like internal organs. I yes, I feel comfortable aspirating a lymph node to see what mm-hmm. what cytology there is. But when we're talking like liver aspirates, no, we're we're not performing that. That is that's usually a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. and then, especially because it usually re- requires training, obviously to use an ultrasound and <laughs> yeah, the person performing the original ultrasound knows exactly what, knows exactly what areas they want to aspirate. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just the preference, mm-hmm. but, um, 
Yeah, so ultrasound guidance is key. I've definitely, unfortunately, seen some patients come over to us who've had aspirates and the clinics don't have access to an ultrasound. Wow, that's kind of scary. I mean, I guess you can palpate and isolate it, but you can't, I don't, I can't imagine that they're going to be like, oh yeah, there's nothing in between. (laughs) I feel like it's very easy to have stuff in between. Well, that and like, we like to monitor for bleeding afterwards because even though we check coags and platelets, like there's still a risk. Yeah. Or what if you hit the gallbladder? Oh my God. Well, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of things you can hit that that would cause problems. Um, Anyway. (laughs) And then, so usually when we're aspirating, because do you do, do you just do 22 gauge needles? We always just use 22. I I read it could be between a 20 and a 22. I was like, ooh, 20. 20? A 20. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I said, yeah. That's scary. I guess uh, it's scary because we don't do it, but I can, yeah, exactly. I can see a 20 gauge being better because you're going to have more cells, theory, more cells and less trauma to the cells. Yeah, exactly. Because you're not getting that like pressure and like the shredding of the cells because Ooh. it's a bigger bore. Cool. I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We always use 22s. Right. <laughs> I, but that's why you wouldn't use a 25 is because you run the risk of damaging the cells. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and then we always use like the one to one and a half inch needles. It depends on the patient. Like if it's Size a small patient. patient. Yep. Yeah, exactly. We've used three quarter inch syringe or needles before. Um, and these needles are typically attached to a syringe. So either a three mil, a six mil or a 12 mil syringe. I've always used three. Oh, oh man, it's so doctor specific. Um, because I've yeah, got I've had doctors use sixes. Threes. My doctor likes sixes. Some like lure locks. Some like the slip tip. Um, mm-hmm. I worked with a doctor who used um, a T port, and then we suctioned with the syringe. It was yeah. I, there's all sorts Dr. of ways preference. to do it. <laughs> so yeah, so we, um, we set up a, we have a tray actually that has like the needles and the syringes and then, um, microscope slides and everything just mm-hmm. like set up. So, or well, not set up, but together so that we know that when we're doing an aspirate and some doctors have their own trays like labeled and everything, cause they're super particular about things. So, so we usually just keep it all together, um, because we do these internal medicine we do it a lot we do it super frequently where we're i gotta say we probably do aspirates <laughs> we, we call them aspirates now um <laughs> because it's all usually masses and we have to do at least one a day like at oh least. yeah for sure at least one a day but so we do discuss with clients so like this is not a biopsy a lot of people will call it a biopsy but we're really only obtaining a few cells versus mm-hmm. like a true like core sample um, so sensitivity for cytology is pretty low. It's generally around 60%. I think my doctor discusses with clients like, cause you know, we always get those clients who are like, well, is this going to give us the answer? And we're like, maybe, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> you very well. Like we might come back when we get the cytology report and still be like, well, now you need a liver biopsy. It's still because sensitive. <laughs> Exactly. Because it's still inconclusive because sensitivity for cytology is low, unless it's some wicked cancer, then we always usually get the answer. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Which but is kind of a bummer. We kind of know what it is usually going in. We look yeah. at it and we're yeah. like, ooh, that looks like this. Let's just confirm. But, yeah. But yeah, we usually have to have the conversation with the client that like this is not a true, like this is not a biopsy. We're only obtaining a few cells. So there is a likelihood that we might not get the answer. Um, and then, so sometimes, like I said, we do have to move into recommending biopsy, especially if our cytology samples are inconclusive or sometimes people actually do opt for biopsy first, or if we've, we kind of have a general idea as to, you know what, this very well might be copper, mm. like, and mm -hmm. then we'll move to an actual liver biopsy because we know that that is required in order to get those samples. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe necessary after finding needle aspirates just for a definitive diagnosis. Same thing though. Um, we rec I mean, it's recommended to do biochemistry profile, CBC, coagulation profile, platelets should all be checked prior to a surgical biopsy. Um, it is not recommended to perform surgery if platelets are less than 80,000. I think that depends on the surgeon because I think it depends on how critical it is, right? Like if it, yeah. if if your patient's bleeding out and we need to get in there and resect something and get a mm -hmm. biopsy at the same time, uh, then, you know, again, it's that ASA level thing, right? Like, is it an elective procedure? Is it not elective? How, how high up on the ASA are they? So I think, yeah. And I think it also depends on how driven in particular the owners are to getting a definitive answer, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes we treat empirically because we suspect something and we're like, you know, mm -hmm. we could get biopsies, but we're going to treat it the same way. Or maybe we go, if we get biopsies, it just confirms that yes, there's cancer. So why do we do biopsies? So it, especially if we have those clients who are like, I'm not going to treat cancer. Well, then exactly. I'm like, okay, well then, well, then why get a biopsy? Surgery. <laughs> Unless like you said, it's like, what if it's a bleeding liver mass and it needs, it's either you know. that or, you know, bleed out. Yeah. So, and, and biopsies, um, you know, on a healthy, stable patient, great there, you know, it's very straightforward. If it's bleeding mass and, you know, we need to get in there and stop the bleeding, that's, that's a different procedure. It's <laughs> a different prognosis as yeah, well. Exactly. Um, because usually if it's a liver mass, it's not like a spleen mass. Like it's the likelihood of it being cancer is pretty high versus like mm -hmm. spleens can just get hematomas. Um, yeah. And once it starts bleeding, it's like seeding everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It, there is that, that possibility of seeding and it depends on what liver lobe it is. Right. Um, oh, yeah. if, if it's one of the, like the main liver lobes, you, you can't remove it. Um, but, and, and like how much of the liver is involved. So there's, there's a lot of parts and pieces to it, but once you kind of get into, you know, actually getting ready for surgery, um, you can, like, if they have some coagulation issues, we can use plasma, um, especially if like clotting factors are down. Um, and when we say plasma, I meant to write like fresh frozen plasma specifically. <laughs> oh yeah. Yes. Sorry. Fresh frozen plasma. So within a year, um, because after a year, mm -hmm. it's no longer you lose a lot of those frozen. coagulation factors. They're just frozen plasma. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that and that can help. Now, if you're just talking about proteins, yes, you can use frozen plasma, but coagulation proteins, that is fresh frozen plasma. Yeah, and we've used a product. So if they have low platelets, say less than eighty thousand, but they're not bleeding, well 
this product actually is good for bleeding mm. as well, like active bleeding. So there's a product out there called Stable Plate. We're by no means like promoting this product specifically like via the company. <laughs> like we're not getting paid to talk about this. Definitely just, not. <laughs> we, I've used this product in my clinic. So it's a product called Stable Plate RX. It's shelf stable, like platelet derived product for hemostasis. It's like a freeze dried product. Mm. Um, and we use it for like emergency situations. So situations where a pet is bleeding and usually it's a bleeding splenic mass and they have, there's like consumption of their platelets. So they have platelets mm. of like 50 or 60,000. And this just gives them a boost, kind of like a band-aid of platelets long enough to get the spleen out and mm. to stop bleeding. Um, it's also been used for kind of presumptive like band-aid so like our patients who aren't bleeding yet but same thing they have about eighty thousand platelets and we the surgeon just wants that little extra boost of platelets because platelets do not circulate through the body even this product this product is good and i've seen it work but um because it platelets aren't readily like circulating through the body like they get broken down pretty quickly it's meant to be mm -hmm. a band-aid long enough to get them through surgery right yeah and recovery yeah. And, um, just an interesting thought process. Cause we've talked about it before is like, um, using something like Unambio, um, mm -hmm. to kind of help support. I mean, this isn't, this isn't going to be the only thing that you do, but it can help. Um, especially if you've got a bleeding patient. Um, and if you guys don't know what it is, it's an herb. <laughs> it's, it's no idea what's in it. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I joke that there's all sorts of horrible things in there because you, you can't read it. I, I think it honestly, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of roots and herbs and things like that, but, um, it's, I've funny. also seen that product work. So yes. <laughs> yeah, we use it a ton actually. Um, so, uh, and, and we give it to patients that have a mass in their abdomen that may have had a bleed, but it's not bleeding. Now we tell them to use it at home um, to just keep their pets healthy. So, um, so we have the, the needle biopsy technique, which, um, is a large bore needle. We have the, the true cut, uh, biopsy, which is the percutaneous. So, um, usually you're making a small like stab incision with a, um, with a scalpel blade into the skin. And then you're, introducing the true cut biopsy needle through the muscle layers or the linea alba into the abdomen to get your uh, liver sample. And so this is like, it's, it's crazy because it's like a, it's got like a plunger and everything and, and you hit the button and it ka-chunks. That's, that's what I say. It just goes ka -chunk. And it, it ka-chunks. Ka -chunk. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't get that the first yeah. time. My bad. Yeah. You did whatever. You know what sound it makes, Jordan. <laughs> um, and, and then it, you take that out and you get like a, a core sample. Um, but the problem is, is like, there's no way for you to put a finger on it to stop it from bleeding. So this is why my doctors don't like it because you can try to put pressure on it from the outside of the abdomen. But if there's bleeding, you got to go in or you know, let them bleed. So we don't like it. Um, and then there's laparoscopic biopsies. Um, I've, I've assisted with a couple of these laparoscopic biopsies, super cool because, um, it's, 
minimally invasive. Um, so this is like when we're talking about like really non-invasive is going to be an is cytology aspirate. Like there, well, that's also considered minimally invasive, but that's like on the the lowest end of minimally invasive. Um, then there's, I think technically true cut after that. And then laparoscopic. The laparoscopic is interesting because um, you have to get everything set up. There's a lot of tech um, hands-on for this one because we have to get the laparoscopic equipment set up. We have our patient set up. Um, the nice thing is um, most of the times it's only three incisions. So there's uh, a small incision that you introduce the camera into. And then there's two incisions. Well, it can be one incision, but you can do two. And those are instrument ports. And so what happens is it's like playing video game. <laughs> so the doctor's got um, the screen that they're looking at with their um with their camera that's in the abdomen. Um, so the, the abdomen is inflated with carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide um, absorbs easily into the bloodstream and gets out and isn't toxic and all that stuff. So, um, and it's surge, it's like medical grade carbon dioxide. So it's considered sterile. Um, Can I so, point out though, because yes. I had a friend who had laparoscopic gallbladder removal yeah. and she complained about like discomfort because all the gas, like yes. before it's resorbed, like moves and like just causes discomfort that these patients, even though it's like a considered like a minimally invasive surgery, mm -hmm. like there's still some discomfort associated with it. So these pain, these patients should still be treated with pain medications. So yeah. hopefully they're not just like, okay, bye. <laughs> like yeah, right? going home. There is still pain involved. So yeah, I definitely agree, but it's not as painful as like a full surgical biopsy. Oh, for sure. So yeah. Because you're that's why through the skin yeah. and then the muscle layer mm -hmm. and like, yeah, exactly. and pulling things over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really crazy because they fill the abdomen with the carbon dioxide. And then um, you're watching on the screen as they're using their instruments um to to kind of move everything around and look at the organs and it's it's a trip to see it on a big screen and you like see the gallbladder and then you see the liver lobes <clears throat> and then what they do is they do it's like a pinch biopsy kind of thing mm -hmm. so they have like their graspers that they they grab onto the chunk of liver and then the doctor that i worked with um would twist it to take it off and the idea is when they twist it, it actually um, helps kind of ligate the blood vessels. Yeah, so it like twists the blood vessels too, mm -hmm. like a balloon. Yes. Like. And then so yeah. she twists it and then takes the samples out, um, which blew my mind. <laughs> and then um, I think we tried to get, I don't, I don't think it was every liver lobe, but multiple liver lobes. Um, mm -hmm. And then you put your samples, hopefully you know, most of them will go into like a formalin, um, jar. And then we have another sample for like our co copper by, uh, copper sample that goes into like a, uh, white top tube, like a, no, additive. yeah, like a no additive tube. Mm -hmm. And then, um, if we need to get the gallbladder, you can actually do laparoscopic gallbladder removal, which is crazy. I have not done this, but you can do it. Um, it's kind of interesting. They like, grab it and then they like suck it through the port and they kind of make it small and then suck it through, which is crazy. Um, and then you can get your, your cultures from that. So that one's nice because again, minimal incisions, 
um, a little bit of pain, but not as bad as like full surgery. Um, you can do most things, um, but this is, so laparoscopic biopsies are typically for livers that aren't, like there's not like a big mass on it that we're worried about bleeding. Um, so this is, is more of like a homogenous liver that we just need to get samples from. Um, yeah, so that's laparoscopic. And you haven't, you haven't done either one. You haven't helped with either one of them. I have helped with zero liver biopsies in general. <laughs> My gosh. Okay. So surgical biopsies are, it's an X-lap, so exploratory laparotomy. Um, so it's, it's a full incision. So this is like the big zipper. <laughs> um, so they'll go in, they get, usually it's liver biopsies. And so this is the wedge cut. So this is a larger sample. Um, and then I feel like they usually check out the gallbladder make sure that's not an issue. Sometimes we have to do gallbladder removal at the same time. Um, sometimes because it's an internal medicine patient, we're also getting intestinal biopsies at the same time. If there's anything else funky in there. Um, I've had patients that had like a GI foreign body at the same time that we're doing this. Um, I've also had patients that we are doing gastropexies at the same time. So if you've got all these other issues going on at the same time, that's probably why you're going X-LAP instead of um, laparoscopic biopsies. And then waking up and recovering, you know, it's, it's making sure that they're not painful because we've done a pretty big procedure on them um, and just recovering. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I have pictures that I can definitely share, especially the laparoscopic. I feel like not as many people see those. Um, oh, for so sure. Those, those are way more fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and surgical biopsies actually pro provide like a diagnosis, uh, like up to 80 to 90% of biopsy samples. So I, w I wonder why 10 to 20% aren't, don't have a diagnosis. I think it's Weird like me. surgeon based and like, mm, like if the sample's not big enough or they didn't get yeah. the right spot or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that like, makes sense. Well, that and like, I don't know, we've had some of those reports, biopsy reports where like a pathologist looks at it and they're like, dude, we have no idea. Right. Like, these cells look weird, but we don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Did you, so I think we talked about this previously, like, um, using like Cornell university. Mm -hmm. Did you guys ever use, um, I think it was Dr. Sharon center. Oh, I don't know. So she, um, she was like the liver guru for the longest time. And we would send off our biopsies to her and we would get like 12 page reports from every biopsy. Oh my God. Yeah. It was insane. She, uh, and she did, she did a ton of studies, but, um, her, liver like biopsy reports were so intense and she completely geeked out on the liver and would just like come in on her days off and um her technicians i could tell i was like oh she's one of those because her technicians will be like yep she's still reading it out she's about a month out at the moment and you're just like okay we'll, we'll wait for the reports um she she retired but i remember just like seeing her biopsy reports and being like whoo 
all right those are good doctors though because like they actually care Mm-hmm. plus like well, and she so was super, freaking smart yeah she was super smart super passionate about everything with the liver and she gave us like i think she was one of those where she did not give you like a non-answer she was like nope yeah i'm gonna find that's out great. <laughs> yeah it was really cool. she'd find out and then she'd explain like exactly why yeah it was doing that yeah. that's amazing yeah more doctors definitely need to be like that. More people I mean, in general need to be that way. <laughs> on a, it was one of those situations, though, where her biopsies would take anywhere from four to eight weeks. So it wasn't... Well, yeah. It wasn't like which a does quick, like, s- five to seven no. day turnaround kind of thing. So. Which does kind of suck when you're like, we need to know if we need to start yeah. treatment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We usually did yeah. two biopsies for that because we'd be like, let's just get a preliminary one. And then we got the big daddy one that's coming. So <laughs> that's a good idea. Um, we're going to discuss a little bit of just anesthetic and analgesic considerations, just because if you are performing these type of procedures, it's pretty important to know what the liver is doing and what drugs it can effectively metabolize Mm -hmm. as best as it can, because we know that the liver metabolizes most everything. Um, So the liver is usually the primary source for the breakdown of most drugs, but clearance of drugs usually occurs via the renal system. And I will say when we're talking about anesthesia, that's, if you have a liver patient, that's something that you need to keep in the back of your mind because, because it is what breaks down drugs. You have to think half-life, right? When we're talking about mm-hmm. drugs and how long they're in the system, that means that drugs are going to be circulating in the system for longer, having a longer duration of action. And that includes ISO, right? So yep. yes, we run at a one, one and a half percent ISO. Well, towards, if we're in a long procedure, you may have to just back off quite a bit more than you think of because it's the, the ISO is building up in the system and not being cleared out the way it normally would. So a liver patient, just remember, you may use significantly less drug than you're used to just because it's not breaking down the way that it should in a healthy liver patient. And your recovery times might be a lot longer yes. than normal. Yep. So drugs that usually cause hypotension should be avoided because these drugs rely on like the blood flow to the liver for breakdown. So if we have hypotension, then blood is not flowing adequately to the liver. Mm-hmm. And then of course, if we have liver disease, the liver isn't able to properly filter things out, especially when you have when you have hypotension because it's not being able to kind of circulate through the liver as well. So drugs that typically cause hypotension includes phenothiazines like our acepromazine as well as alpha-2 adrenergic agonists like our dextomator. Mm -hmm. Those are drugs that we don't even have in IM. (laughs) Those don't (laughs) exist in IM because of hypertension. Yeah. <laughs> we, we use it so infrequently in my department. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll sometimes, I feel like more dextomator than, or dexmedetomidine um, compared to acepromazine. I feel like acepromazine, we like never use both because of hypotension and it's just not reversible. So see, we, we, we don't, don't even have it. dexmedetomidine. We have acepromazine strictly for our LARPAR dogs. Benzodiazepines are typically considered the safest option for sedation in our hepatic patients. Um, So some of these patients 
if so if they have like severe hepatic impairment you can see excessive sedation and or pro prolonged recovery kind of like we just talked about because these drugs are broken down by the liver um so you're gonna see even though they're considered the safest you're going to expect to see prolonged recovery time it's going to take them a lot longer than normal for them to just kind of go back to how they were acting prior to your aspirates or your surgery procedure um, opioids are also considered a safe option for these patients with the exception of our hepatic encephalopathy patients um, there's not really a lot of safe things for hepatic encephalopathy patients just because the toxins are already running pretty high in their system which we will talk about when we talk about hepatic encephalopathy but i like opioids especially when we do cris just because cris are very effective for these patients just for our ability to really titrate their doses to effective dosing for these patients so we can really run things like if we're doing like a fentanyl cri we can really run them at like one microgram per kg per hour because we know that their liver is not metabolizing as well and they're still getting effective medication and effective pain medication dosing um however our opioids do have some degree of risk for bradycardia and decreased cardiac output but we can also combat these with our anticholinergic drugs such as atropine and glycopyrrolate we use atropine in my clinic i don't know if you use glycopyrrolate um I but... think we use both atropine and glyco just kind of depending on uh you know kind of what's going on and like how long we need it because atropine's like shorter acting than glyco mm -hmm. so i think it just depends on um what we need it for yeah um i know in my clinic butorphanol and buprenorphine we use a lot because it does have the lowest risk of cardiovascular and respiratory depression those are like our go-to sedatives for our especially our, our fnas um <laughs> just because yeah, they do like torbs what we torb is definitely what we use for sedation um, mm -hmm. and then buprenorphine is more for cats. Um, but the problem with buprenorphine is, um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about going into surgery, that's not mm -hmm. a good option just because it's not, it, it usually doesn't have enough of a pain blocking effect. Um, and mm -hmm. so you can use it up to like four to six hours prior to anesthesia. Um, mm -hmm. but then you need to switch over to like a CRI that you can titrate. So we usually switch them over to like a fentanyl thing. And mm -hmm. then post-op, you know, depending on, on how they're doing, we either continue our CRI or we switch them back to buprenorphine, but, um, you don't want to use buprenorphine right before surgery, just because you can't add on other good pain medications. Cause it won't knock out the buprenorphine from the receptors. Yeah. They like negate each other <laughs> like, they do yeah with, and then you're like oh great but but buprenorphine left with no pain management yeah, exactly so you just we just usually don't use it for surgery but yeah use it for you know before slash after um as long as it's not still in the system yeah um opioids are great because of the ability to re reverse the effects of the drug with drugs like naloxone. So especially if we give a dose of an opioid and then our patients are showing an exaggerated response, even to a low dose. Sometimes some of our patients can show a very exaggerated response to these drugs with their liver impairment. Um, so sometimes it is needed to reverse these, especially if you're doing an FNA and 
you get the FNA done and yet they're still very like sedate, you can reverse this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I'm working with my anesthesiologist and we've got like a PDA coming up and we were talking about how during the procedure, yes, it's painful, but post-op it's, it is not painful. And so she was actually talking about using, um, either buprenorphine or, um, Torb to reverse the drugs so that they recover better. And I was like, ah, okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense because like, if you, you do want them to not experience pain. Well, I mean, they shouldn't be experiencing pain during the procedure if they're adequately anesthetized. Right. But well, but uh, during the procedure, you're, you know, your anesthesia, you're doing the multimodal. So yeah, they're using like fentanyl CRI. Well, actually I don't think fentanyl, but either way, like, but the problem is, is like with these patients, once the, the, like for specifically for PDA, right. Once the occluders placed, like, it's not painful Mm -hmm. after that. Like once they're recovering, it's not painful, but they still have all these pain meds on board. And then we, we need to reverse it. So then they're not wacky and crazy. Yeah, exactly. That makes, I mean, that makes sense because yeah, because it does affect your anesthesia though too, if they're experiencing pain while under anesthesia. (laughs) Oh, so, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you end up having to use more drugs and that's bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, especially during something like that. Oh my God. Could you imagine? Oh, mm, I don't like surgery. Like I just, <laughs> like... <laughs> I, it's so funny because my second, second love is surgery slash anesthesia. So I'm, which is funny too. Cause I would love to like experience more cardiology and a PDA surgery is very, cardiology <laughs> like yeah i was gonna say pda and then um uh and pda and then placing a pacemaker is you know oh yeah those are they're 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 anesthesias that make you pucker <laughs> or For get extra sure. gray hairs but they're they're definitely once you get through it it's it's super satisfying because uh, the patient just feels so much better afterwards which is right um so kind of like we already talked about our mute opioids can be partially reversed with things like butorphanol. So our fentanyl um, can be reversed by things like butorphanol or buprenorphine as well. Um, Which I learned that at a conference recently and I was like, which I, I knew, I think like deep down in my brain, but then like when I learned about like the receptors and like I got deep into it and I was like, like mind blown. (laughs) Isn't it great when stuff like that happens? You're like, yeah, yeah. It's somewhere peripherally. And then all of a sudden your brain's like, I get it. Yeah. It's like when it clicks, like, and I know exactly like what's like when I can picture what's happening within the body, I'm super happy. I'm like thrilled. Yeah. That's, that's always the greatest moment where it like clicks and you get it and you, Mm -hmm. now it's like, okay, it's not just some abstract thing. Like it, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not just something that that I know, but I don't know why I know it. Like, like, (laughs) which is a lot of the information in my brain, but, (laughs) um, so propofol is a great choice for induction for these patients because even though it is primarily metabolized in the liver, some of it is also metabolized in the lungs. So it can be very rapidly eliminated just with the help of the metabolization, metabolization through the lungs. And did um, you, when you were looking at this, did it talk about alfaxalone at all for liver patients? No. Interesting. I think, I mean, it's still kind of a relatively newer drug, I feel like, but. Um, yeah, but it works similar to propofol. 
Yes. Yeah. It's just, um, we use alfaxalam for like our cardiac cardiac patients. Cause there's less mm-hmm. cardiac, um, effects. Whereas propofol, mm-hmm. I mean, propofol is still a great, we use propofol for years for cardiac patients. Um, yeah. but you know, I think it just, it has less of that, like, yeah, yeah. It has less of that risk of like the app. Yeah, that propofol can have and then the transient like hypotension from apnea yeah like, well I is think what i was kind of gathering yes and i think it's how it's given because i feel like a lot of people do like fast pushes and propofol and alfaxalone need to be slow titrated pushes of the drug to affect like i feel like yeah. there's a lot of people that push super fast and that's what causes the apnea yeah which i mean Ugh, I I'm not comfortable pushing any drug fast. I can give oh like dexamethasone <laughs> IV and like still push it as slow as I push propofol because I'm like, nah. oh my god, this is so funny. <laughs> like, like I know it's okay, but I'm just like I don't. I'm not comfortable with it. Oh my god, I love it. It's so funny. <laughs> um. Anyway, our cautions for this week, just because as we wrap up this episode, like I said, it's a short episode, even though I think we probably <laughs> rambled enough. To have made it longer if we wanted to. It's not rambling, is it? it it's partially rambling. It's but a, I feel like it's there's educational some good, rambling. Good nuggets in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> educational rambling. Um, so for our cautions, these patients should just be monitored very closely, uh, perioperatively and postoperatively operatively for complications. We talked about it in the past two episodes. Just I mean. This goes for like all surgical patients though, that like we should really be monitoring yeah. very closely. Um, but these patients are at a high risk depending on the severity of their liver disease, just for certain complications like hypertension, um, especially if we're battling like low albumin or coagulation issues. Um, it should be, these Definitely. patients should be monitored pretty, pretty quickly or pretty efficiently. <laughs> yeah. It's the tip of the week. Tip of the week for this week, just because... I don't do these surgeries. This is a good tip for me that do your research on good anesthetic considerations before monitoring a patient with these hepatic issues, just to allow for smooth surgical procedures. So if I knew that I were going to be assisting with a surgery and assisting in monitoring one of these patients, I would definitely try to do my research as to how best manage these patients under anesthesia and know what to expect for complications while under anesthesia, just so you can be prepared. You know, like maybe you already have your um, atropine already pulled up and maybe, you, you know, your, your doctor's obviously going to make the call for what medications to give preoperatively, but maybe you can have a discussion with them as like, well, what if we did this instead? Um, or why are you doing that? Just so you can kind of have a better grasp on the surgical procedure itself. Yeah. Also, and, and we, we use, um, we have like a sheet where we mm-hmm. put the patient's weight in and then you can see all the drugs and what doses. And that includes like the emergency drugs. Um, so I think, you know, we, especially with like the higher ASAs, so the more critical patients, um, which liver disease can be one of those, you want to have that team meeting conversation before we're doing biopsies and say, you know, what's the bleeding risk? Like, do we need to have a second catheter in place to make sure if we need to do a blood transfusion, that's, that's something, or, you know, do we need to have plasma going and and thawing? So I think making sure that you have that conversation with your, your doctor slash surgeon, um, is really important. And then of course, if you guys haven't been 
been like part of the anesthesia nerds Facebook group. Oh yes, Definitely check that out because you know, there's, there's some amazing brains in that group and like they, there's resources in that group. Um, and so if you have questions, they're such a great resource to, to figure things out, um, both before your procedure and afterwards to discuss and say, Hey, this is what I saw. What do you think could be going on too? So. Yeah, for sure. And then also another tip of the week is just when administering medications IV to these patients, like anesthetic and analgesic medications, lower doses should be used. So the majority of these dosage range have a high end and a low end. We always want to start at the low end of dosing. Um, Well, and I think not just anesthetic and analgesic, but there are some other medications that we may need to drop down dosage wise as well. So um, mm -hmm. just again, keep that in the back of your mind, things that are metabolized in the liver, we may need to be dropping those dosages for. And now for the question of the week. The question of this, the week this week is, is there anything that you learned in this episode that you did not know before listening? Um, just because again, I don't do surgery. I don't do a lot of these procedures except for the FNAs. I do a lot of those. Well, I assist with a lot of those. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> And I learned a lot of this stuff while I was studying for my VTS stuff, but it's nice to refresh my memory. So when we are doing procedures like this, or I can kind of like look over the shoulders of some of the surgery techs and be like, oh, what are you doing? Like for this liver biopsy and it just makes, it, it clicks a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's one of those things, like if you don't use it, you definitely will lose it. Right. And so for sure, <laughs> it's kind of like me and, um, you know, uh, anti-parasitic medication. Uh, I don't remember all of them, mm. uh, but the, you know, if you're listening to this episode, which we hope you are right. Um, is there something that you got out of it that you might talk to your doctor about and be like, Hey, um, why don't we do X, Y, and Z for our liver biopsies? Or, Hey, if, if we don't do liver biopsies, you know, why do we you know, just do cytology or whatever it is. So, um, let us know. And we'll, again, we'll put that in the, uh, membership group. So you can answer the question there. You can answer it in the Facebook group or on the website. We've got a couple of ways you can do it. So. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. Thank you for listening and tuning in and we appreciate you guys. We hope you are learning and continue to learn because, you know, hashtag I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we will talk to you guys next week. You guys have a wonderful week. Get your learn on. Keep being the amazing rock star techs that we know that you are because you are listening to a veterinary podcast and, you know, in your not everybody (laughs) exactly (laughs) so we totally appreciate you guys being there and uh we'll talk to you guys next week Bye. bye thank you for listening to today's episode of the internal medicine for vet techs podcast if you like what you heard we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode want to give us a boost please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettex.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.